Hey, I'm Kyle. I'm Brad. I'm Dave. And this is the So What podcast from Theology in the Middle. Have you guys ever wondered um, how to share the gospel or evangelize to people that are like completely indifferent to faith? Yeah, totally. What does it look like? So you're having a conversation with somebody and uh, like the the topic of belief and faith and, and God and all those things starts to come up. And it's like you're talking to them about the like the last episode of Antiques Roadshow and they don't want to have anything to do with this conversation. Like they they could they could not care less. And you feel stuck in that moment because I mean that's something that's really important to you as a believer, but to them obviously like they could not care less. Yeah. Yeah, I've had that experience. I mean it makes you a little uncomfortable yourself because you know you're supposed to feel more in control in that situation more confident, mm-hmm. but in a way it kind of has a, a way of, you know, unsettling you. And you're like, how am I supposed, I, you know, because you, you have the, the Romans road or whatever that you are prepared, but then when it's obvious that they don't care, whatever you have in the, you know, in the chamber ready to fire away, it seems totally powerless. Right. Uh, you you asked, have I ever wondered how do I evangelize uh, to those who are kind of indifferent or really irreligious to religion? And I, not only have I encountered that, I feel like I'm encountering that more and more. That seems to be almost the standard. It's just kind of a throw your shoulders up, shrug, and go, eh. It used to be a defense of like, well, all faiths are equal, or my faith is better than your faith. But now it's just kind of like, faith, it's so blasé, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's so archaic to talk about something. It shows that I'm not evolved or something. I haven't gotten with the times. Uh, I feel like I'm hanging out with a flat earther, maybe, you know. <laughs> and, and it's what I think is interesting. It's not so you're saying like you're experiencing it more and more. Um, and I've, I've spoken to people from like different religions or even like uh, a religious people, like skeptics, atheists, and they tell me the same thing. So they want to grab coffee with an old friend. And their their friend, you know, maybe was a Christian or a nominal Christian or something like that. And this person grabbing coffee with them is an atheist, and they want to talk about God, and uh, that person doesn't care. So, so it's it's, yeah. it's not even like uh, you know, it's an issue that we as Christians face as believers, but even non-believers are finding that this kind of indifference towards belief in God, whether positive or negative, uh, seems to be growing in our culture. Why is that? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I've thought, I thought about this uh, quite a bit, and uh, I, I think that um, a lot of it comes down to, um, there's a lot of explanations for the big questions uh, available in a culture like ours, that uh, belief in God um, is contested, so you have atheism, agnosticism, but it's also diverse, so you live next to a Hindu or a Muslim across the street. Uh, so which one's right? I mean, you, you have uh, all of these different competing voices, and to give every single one of those beliefs a fair shake is exhausting. Like, who has time in a 40-hour work week with uh, a wife or a husband, kids, extra responsibilities, to really seek out those questions? There's just too many options, and so some people just get exhausted with the options and, and give up. And they don't care, and they just see Christianity as one of those options. Um, and I think also in our culture like ours, we've become very um, comfortable and distracted. 
And so, uh, you know, a long time ago, um, God played such a big role in my daily life to think he didn't exist was absurd, right? I mean, you don't think about it raining as being an act of God anymore in our culture, but for them, if God didn't bless us with rain, we didn't eat and and we could starve over the winter. Uh, We're so comfortable. Things, our our culture has given us everything we think we need. Um, And then, uh, have you read uh, Alan Noble's book uh, about distraction? No, I haven't. Is it good? Yeah, so he's he's got this really good uh, kind of a wake up call, I think. Um, to it, the book is called Disruptive Witness, uh, and he talks about how um, our whole culture is just constantly bombarded with chimes and beeps from smartphones, and we have a thousand extra responsibilities than you know a previous generation before us, and our mind is just going a thousand places a minute, and so if time is money, to think about God requires you to sit down to read this thick book written a long time ago, uh, like the Bible. Um, we don't have time for that. And, and even if we do set that time aside, we're interrupted by, you know, emails from work or texts from friends or uh, ESPN sports app tells you how your baseball team's doing. You know, it's just, con- and I think all of these things, um, when combined together, have left us in in a state of apathy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, maybe a couple of years now reading an article about millennials and astrology and how uh, astrology was like, you know, growing in, I guess, relevance for, for millennials. And there were a couple of quotes in, in the article that have stuck with me still. I mean, one of them was like this young college girl, I guess, saying like, oh, you know, people are, are so unfair. You know, they're so critical. It's like, astrology is not true but she's like who cares if it's true like it works it means something mm. to me and i think that's a lot of things that people see it's like i don't know maybe they're pragmatic in their approach to life and it's like you're saying you got so many different things competing for your attention and your time what's the payoff here like is yeah. is yeah. my faith in god gonna make my life any better than it is right now and if not because i mean again christianity tells us that you know we're not always promised a new Cadillac in the yard, but we're often suffering. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for something that's going to pay off, I mean, it's going to pay off, but it may not pay off in the way that you want. And so I don't know. I just wonder if the pragmatism, yeah. you know, factors into. You know, honestly, when I hear apathy is a mirror, uh, you know, I'm an apathetic agnostic or really it doesn't matter or just meh in general, or I'm irreligious. Uh, to be honest with you guys, I just don't buy it. Uh, 90% of the time, I, I just, you know, they're talking about their existence in the world and their perception of concepts around them as if they're free floating in space, you know, with no noise and all darkness. And I just, I honestly think the term irreligious is just a misnomer. Um, I think it's impossible to have no religious beliefs. I, I think that we will all be on the same page that if we bring up just the etymology, the root of the word religion, it's ligament. It binds us to the world around us. And so religion is to rebind us to what is happening in a daily uh flora and fauna of life, the crying baby, your raise or not raise, you want that job, you're dealing with suffering. There's things happening all around us that we have to perceive through some form or filter. 
And to say that I have no religious beliefs is to say that I have no filter, no perspective, no worldview in which I'm going to interpret the world around me. And I just don't buy it. Mm. Now, I don't buy it from a sociological standpoint, and I for certain don't buy it from the biblical standpoint, because all thought, all action, all living and breathing and moving is either idolatry or worship. Mm right? Uh, my two-year-old would say they're not religious. And yet uh, when they snatch a toy from another kid in the playground, they don't say Vishnu's or God's. They say mine because they are the center of their own universe. They have a religion, whether it's articulated or not. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. And whenever a child falls down and scrapes their knee and looks around it, through tears in their eye, they're looking for nearby comfort. I think that we have this primal sense to look outside of ourselves for meaning, for comfort, and we all do it. Yeah. Um, we're all yearning for these collective experiences, this shared encyclopedia of culture. And um, and if I'm honest, I think the, the have you ever wondered, I think it will resonate with a lot of people because they're encountering this more and more. But I think the reason the church feels so uh, caught with their pants down... <laughs> On this issue is not because it's a new phenomenon. I think it's because we've accidentally taught people that evangelism and apologetics is more like fencing than painting. Yeah, I think I read that book. Yeah, they'll take this stab, you'll do that. Is that a book? On guard. Oh, yeah, yeah literally exactly. on wow. guard. It's yeah. yeah. Oh, go on. Well, no, no, no. I just it's just like you'll stab, they'll parry. That's when yeah. you do this, or they'll stab, you parry. And now we're like, well, they're not fighting back. What how do I yeah. evangelize? Yeah. That, I'm like, well, it wasn't a fight. That's so good. One of the questions I ask um is uh what if Christianity in certain parts of our culture now is living in a s in a in an Athens without a statue to the unknown God? And so, uh the the reason I ask that question is if you know that story from Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens, he is invite, he's, he's preaching the gospel. Um, some of the people think it's really interesting, and they want him to come to a public arena and kind of, uh, you know, present this strange new philosophy of uh, this belief. And uh, as he's in Athens, he, he looks around, he notices the pantheon of gods, all these different statues and idols, and one of them is the unknown god. And uh, we, we're not too sure what that meant for them, but there is a sense that the Athenians knew that there was some kind of God above or beyond the gods that they were already familiar with, that they, they, they wanted to make sure that they worshipped. So Paul leverages that conviction that there is something beyond uh, that, that the Athenians can't comprehend and says, the God that you you worship as unknown, I will now declare to you. He's He's been known to us through the person, work, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, mm. So the reason Paul was able to do that is because there was a minimally common interest in that thing that's beyond our comprehension in, in this yeah. God. Uh, and that's, you're right, that's how apologetics is, uh, it, it presupposes that, doesn't it? Um, so here's the things you're going to do. You're going to bring up these uh, kind of rational arguments for God's existence, and then once you get them to admit there's a plausibility that God exists, then you're going to move them into Christianity. Um, but again, what if we live in a Athens without a statue to the unknown God? Like Paul would not have been able to make the kind of case that he did. Um, there, there wouldn't have been a pantheon, right? And if there, if there would have been a pantheon, it, it would have looked like nobody's touched or taken care of the idols for years, right? There would have been soot on them and, right. and vines growing over them. Um, and so I, I think that that's where we are. And uh, I, I think you're right to say um, the way that the church has approached this 
and rightly so for generations, has been leverage all human curiosity, interest, and pull towards their creator, right? What John Calvin called the the sense of divinity within every single yeah. person. Um, but what happens when you suppress that sense so long that the concept of God itself is, seems irrelevant and that there's better things to do with your time? Yeah, and I, I recognize the biblical imperatives to fight for our faith and contend for the faith and be prepared to give an answer. I'm not saying that we don't engage in these conversations. I think what I'm trying to paint the picture of is a lot of us want to envisage ourselves like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but now we're in like a high school gymnasium and it's like creationism versus evolution. And you know we want fire to fall down so that people know that God created it all. And I just... As I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking about not Elijah and the prophets of Baal, but really Elisha in in 2 Kings 6, you know, when they're surrounded by all these troops and his servants like, oh, no, we're going to be. And I feel like that's Christians right now in the the culture that we're in. It's like, oh, no. And Elisha prays for his eyes to be opened. And he sees that there are horses of fire, Mm. uh, chariots of fire all around them. And they're put at ease, right? Because the Lord's going to fight for them. And so. Most people know that story and they stop there, right? Because God's going to win. But I like where the story goes after. Where the story goes after is that Elisha prays for all the Syrian troops to be blinded. And then he leads them for 12 miles into Samaria. And then prays that the Lord would open their eyes. And they open their eyes and they're in this trap city. They don't know how they got there. But they're in the trap city and they should be destroyed. And really the king of Israel says to Elijah, like, should I kill them? <laughs> and Elisha, I love what he says. He's like, no, don't lift a hand. You didn't capture them. You didn't. They're not your enemies. And he instructs the king of Israel to make a feast for them. And they eat their fill and they drink good wine and he sends them home. And I love that because I really think that's a cool picture of the Christian witness, you know? Yeah. They're not my prisoner. I didn't win it. I can't open your eyes. And you may open them and think like, I'm in for the kill. I got you now. But you're invited to a feast. The Lord's Supper is the first, uh, you know, um, that we celebrate. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's good. That's good. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking too. And, and one of the things that jumps out to me is Jesus' instructions for his disciples when he sent them out in pairs uh, to preach. He sent him from city to city, and he said, you know, if you go to the city and the city won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and keep going. He said, but if you come to a place and you find a person of peace there who welcomes you into their home, stay there and eat the food they give you, you know, and minister to those people. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, and so my vision and desire is to see, you know, our church lead the way in revival and, you know, dozens of people giving their life to Jesus every week through the ministry of our church. But it may be that we're living in a time when, you know, people are going to reject us more frequently. And so we have to develop the habit of just shaking dust off our feet and going to the next person, believing that eventually God's going to lead us to the person who is open. You know, most people may not Mm. be, most people may be apathetic, but surely Mm. there are people who still have a hunger who still have an awareness and need for more. And like you're saying, we need to develop the sort of relationships with them, you know, of hospitality and, and friendship and, you know, hope that as we develop those relationships, the Lord brings them to faith. And then they're able to point yeah. us to the people in their life that, uh, that are hungry. You know, I don't know. 
this sounds so uh, prideful and I don't mean it this way because like what Luther says, we're all poor beggars. The only difference is Christians know where to get the bread. I'm not a believer because I'm smarter than my unbelieving friends. Most of my unbelieving friends are smarter than me because by God's grace, he saved a fool like me. But I do like the picture of Elisha leading them for 12 miles <laughs> and their blindness and their stumbling. Because I do feel like that's my relationship with most unbelievers, particularly apathetic ones. Mm. Like they don't know, they don't see what I see. We're experiencing a different reality, you know what I mean? But I'm praying that the Lord will, upon his prayer request, like open their eyes and they will see. Like, you know what I mean? That's good. Kyle, we're all being coy here, but you're writing a book on this topic. So teach us what are practical (laughs) ways that we can evangelize to the indifferent? I I wish I could. I wish I could teach us. Um, But I I think one of the things that you're both right. uh, And I love that picture that you keep bringing up with uh, the Syrian army. Um, because the, it's God who opens their eyes, right? And so it constantly reminds us that um, you are not the power to convert anybody. If you weren't the power to convert yourself, you're surely not going mm. to be the power to convert your neighbor. Um, that mm. lies squarely in the power of the Spirit through the gospel. Um, so uh, first and foremost, we have to recognize, um, yeah, we, you, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. Um, and that some People, depending on when you meet them in the story of their life, uh, they might not want anything to do with you, which is to Brad's point, right? One of my favorite uh, characters now in the Gospel of John as I'm preaching through it is Nicodemus, because you only see him three times. Once, he is a really skeptical person that comes by night, doesn't really have any idea what Jesus is talking about. The second time you see him, he's kind of sticking up for Jesus among his peers with the Pharisees. And the third time you see him, he's breaking Sabbath, touching a dead body of Christ and burying him. And so you see this progression of discipleship to a true uh, you know, display of faith. Um, so when are you meeting Nicodemus in the story? Uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll, don't judge, right? You, you have no clue where they are, uh, where, what God's doing in their life. Um, but secondly, I, I think there is a really practical thing that we can do um, to, to begin those conversations. Um, it's, it's not what you're going to find in, you know, classic apologetic or evangelism books that begins with that assumption, whoever you're talking to cares about God, right? Um, and it's, uh, well, if they don't care about God, what do they care about, right? Begin the conversation some, somehow. And so uh, whenever I talk to somebody with a stranger, um, I like to ask them three questions. Uh, where do they come from? Um, and uh, what are their hobbies? And then the third question, um, I say, I ask it like this, or I don't ask it, I say it. Tell me about what brings you the greatest amount of joy in life. Um, that's an open-ended question, right? Tell me. So I want to hear descriptions. I want to hear stories. Um, and typically what happens is they'll, they'll light up and they'll tell me that the greatest source of joy is either um, in a community, in a relationship, or in themselves, right? And those three things have one factor in common. They're all created things. Um, and so at that point, you know, now that I've had uh, learned a little bit about them, um, they usually give me the same, you know, opportunity. So what about you? Like, what makes you the most happy? And uh, this is when I present the gospel, right? Um, so we, we didn't start with God. We started with them. Um, we didn't, I didn't assume they were interested in God. I assumed that they were interested in whatever it is that makes them happy in life. And, uh, mm. and at the point 
where we're halfway through the conversation and then the question turns on me, um, I've never had anybody go, oh, well, I don't really want to hear that you're interested in that because I'm not interested in God, right? Now, now they're kind of like, well, why would he be so interested in something that I don't care about? And I've had really good, fruitful discussions um, using that kind of, uh, of, a, of an approach. Because, f- frankly, not everybody uh, is going to be able to, uh, to invest um, the, the kind of hours and energy that, that's required to uh, march a, a Syrian army <laughs> from northern Israel into, into the desert or wherever they went. Um, some, yeah. Sometimes the Lord gives you providential meetings uh, in coffee shops and on the bus and on the train and in the airport, uh, you're only going to get 30 minutes with this person for your entire life. Um, so if the spirit moves you and you've been given that opportunity, why not steward it well? And I think that this is a, a good way to do that. Which do you think a bigger challenge is in evangelism? Apathy in the lost person or apathy in the believer? Apathy in the believer. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, you see, it's like, you're talking about... Wait, can you guys define your terms? What do you mean by apathy in a believer, just for um, my sake? A lack of concern for the lost people that God may be bringing across their path, you know, because that's... Okay, evangelistic zeal. Yeah, I think that's, mm. to me, the, the thing I see, you know, and maybe it's because I'm a pastor, um, and I, I don't know, but it, it, but for me, the thing I hear most is, you know, I'm I'm... I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid I'm not going to know what to say. And I think part of that, you know, we need to equip people better. But at the same time, I think there's also this awareness that people need to, you know, develop. And I was reading for this, uh, for this episode today and, oh, actually in a strange place, but they were talking about uh, the the problem of abstraction. Um, This is Simon Sinek talks about in business, you know, if you're thinking about customers or the bottom line at the end of the year, then you're likely to make certain decisions in your company that might have negative effects on the people around you. And so they say the best thing you can do is to actually know the people that work for you or know the people you work with. And immediately my mind made this connection where we talk about lost people and we hear statistics about, all oh, there are 4 billion people in the world who are going to die without hearing about Jesus or, or whatever the statistical number is. But if you actually meet a lost person, like Dave, you're talking about the the people in your life who don't believe in God. I mean, you develop a different level of commitment to helping them find Jesus. You know, it's not like, hey, I hope the lost people out there come to Christ. But you have a personal investment in the people in your life. And, and it's, so you're talking about the willingness to put in the time and effort to develop relationships that are deep enough and meaningful enough that they actually see that you're not just one of these Christians, you know, going to beat them over the head with Jesus, but that you really care about them and are concerned mm-hmm. about them. And so if we can yeah. develop that, you know, get rid of the apathy in our own hearts towards the people who are going to mm-hmm. die and, you know, spend eternity from Christ, uh, you know, we'll go a long way, I think, in meeting the challenges that are before us. Can I bridge what both of you guys are saying? Maybe uh, I remember reading a line by Brennan Manning, I uh, take him for what he's worth, but he had a line where he says that uh, oftentimes, because the reason I'm going to say this now is because Cal brought up the apologetic of joy. What brings you the most joy? And Manning had a line that said something like, unfortunately, most Christians are like travel agents handing out pamphlets for a place they've never been. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so good. You, you picture a guy going, you need to go to Hawaii. It's beautiful. The sunsets. Oh, you've been? No, I never yeah. have. <laughs> but I heard it's nice. You know what right. I mean? Like, And I'm glad we talked about that in our last episode. A lot of times uh, what 
uh, our faith isn't the center of our joy because we've divided the things that bring us joy yeah. from our faith. You know, we've divided the sacred from the secular. And so I know we talked about that in a previous episode, but to what Brad said too, like people aren't just a pet project. That's right. Uh, they are a relationship that we care about. And I'm going to share a really quick story, which might be awkward if he listens to this, but I don't really care. Um, I, you know, I had go to the same barber and been going for a while and, and just talked to him and he knows I'm a pastor. So he talks differently to me, you know, and I would ask him like, you know, how was your weekend? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you into? And I always noticed that he kind of had this like guard up against because I, I think he thought I was trying to fence him. You know, like get him to a place where he admits and confesses in tears that he has a hole in his heart that's a cross shaped and nothing's going to fill it except for Jesus. And so he was always kind of guarded. And one day I I felt a prompt by the Holy Spirit to go, hey, can I tell you something? I'm not trying, you know, to evangelize you. I'm not trying to win you to Jesus right now. I said, don't be mistaken. I desperately want you to know the Lord. I'm going to pray for that. But these questions are genuine. I genuinely want to know, what are you reading? What do you like about it? What are you into? These aren't just, you know, propositional traps that I'm going to get you with your hand twisted behind your back. Uh, You know, even, I'm sorry, I keep going back to the story of Elisha. I love that the Lord first opens his servant's eyes to see that they don't need help fighting. God's going to win. And then he opens the eyes of the enemy soldiers to see that they are trapped too. Like in both scenarios, Elisha and his servant are kind of passive. God is doing everything. And so um, honestly, after I said that, he just like let his guard down and said, can I just tell you that that means a lot to me. That feels really good. <laughs> because he thought that every conversation was really an arm wrestling match that I, and he, and concedes to me, you know, this is my job. I study religion and he's a barber. He doesn't really care, you know, and it's been really fruitful. Our relationship has been that's really good. fruitful. Yeah. That's, that's really, really important. Um, I, if you, if you take a, like a pragmatic approach or suggestion, like I've, I've made, um, the temptation is to use that as if you're setting the wiffle ball up on a on a little stand and you're gonna like knock an evangelism encounter out of the park, uh, and that's absolutely not the point. Um, the point is genuinely to get to know that person, um, to get to know this image bearing neighbor that God has providentially placed before you or in your life, no matter how long or how short that time may be, and in some way, um, get them to know God. Um, and, and, and this is part of the parable of scattering seeds, right? Uh, we don't really know where their hearts are, um, and the Holy Spirit does. Uh, our, our job is not to determine whether or not um, we, should, we should sow. We've just been told to sow, and uh, the, the Holy Spirit takes over after that. So it's really, really good. Brad, you, you, or you said, uh, no, maybe it wasn't Brad. I think it was Dave. Um, you said prayer. Uh, I think kind of like winding up this conversation, uh, winding down the conversation, um, that at the end of the day is the most crucial thing that you can do for somebody who is just completely indifferent or apathetic to faith and God um, is to pray for them. Um, pray that the Holy Spirit would soften their heart, um, pray that he would open their eyes, um, pray that he would give them the, the, the proper fervor or zeal that is missing from their life, 
Um, because again, he's the only one that, that can do that and will do that. And he wants to do that. And he wants to use you to, to be a part of that. Um, but prayer, just pray for people. Um, we kind of, we began by asking the question, um, have you ever wondered how do we ought to evangelize to somebody who was indifferent? Um, we talked a little bit about that indifference is real, right? We're experiencing that across our culture. Um, it's an indifference, but but you don't believe it. Yeah, so we're all religious at heart. There is this seed of faith in, in every single person because, you know, we're created in God's image for a relationship with him. So it's, uh, it's not that it's not there. It's just been severely, um, you know, uh, oppressed or suppressed by uh, an individual. Um, and uh, made mention, like, you know, the, the church has trained people uh, to approach evangelism, kind of like fencing or boxing, all on the assumption that the person actually wants to fence and that they actually want to box. So what do you do if they're sitting on the sideline? Um, and then we, we talked about uh, joy, that, uh, you know, asking them about their joy, genuinely wanting to get to know them so that you would have, uh, one, the opportunity and the respect and the trust to share with them uh, what brings you the greatest joy. And God ought to bring you the greatest joy, because maybe if he doesn't, uh, there's a there's an even bigger problem uh, that you have to address, like Brad pointed out. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the Lord um, ordains our steps. Uh, he's the one that causes uh, fruit to grow in our lives, and so we ought to pray. Uh, pray for ourselves to, to recapture a joyful witness and pray for those to whom um, we are witnessing.